So God, all throughout scripture, the people of God call out, naming what is wrong with the world, grieving injustice, filled with sorrow and lament and longing for things to be made right. And so even as we as a congregation are discerning what it means for us to be faithful and for us to be brave, we recognize that sometimes grief, grief itself, is part of obedience. We pray for our very real neighbors, the Theong family, for those who surround them, for Sue's friends and classmates. And while we can't imagine what possibly could redemption look like, we, we persistently hold fast that resurrection means the worst thing is not the last thing. So would you do your work, Holy Spirit, in this Leong family and in our neighborhood here in Oklahoma City? And would you do your work in the, fa- in the Jefferson family of Fort Worth? And my goodness, that whole city that just continues to reel with injustice and racialized violence. We want to cry, how long, O oh Lord? And yet we also want to be open to the ways in which you call your church to be faithful to be even the answers to the prayers that we pray. Give us courage, Lord, to stand in solidarity, to weep in solidarity, to lament, and even to work on behalf of and alongside brothers and sisters who are grieving. We ask all of this because our true desire is that your kingdom come and your will be done in Oklahoma City and in Fort Worth and in 8th Street Church as it is in heaven. We ask these things in the power and the hope of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Invite you to turn your Bibles to Second Timothy chapter two, if you would. My name is Chris, and it is a privilege for me to be one of the pastors here. I have some friends who have Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, you can just raise your hand. I'm going to be living, reading out of the New Living Translation, so just pop your hand up, and somebody would love to bring you a Bible. There are a few, I think, right here, right here. If you uh, are practicing your Spanish, or if your heart language is Spanish, we have Bibles in Spanish as well. You can have this if you don't own a Bible. We'd love to give it to you as a gift. But I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting with verse 8, reading through verse 15. And I want to ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word. Uh, This is our lectionary text out of the New Testament. Uh, I realized this week somebody told me that uh, lectionary actually needs to be explained. And so in our e-note this week, we're going to be talking about what the lectionary is so I invite you, if you are not a part of our e-note that goes every, out every week, to, uh, to go ahead to go to our website and sign up for that. So uh, listen to uh, the word of the Lord out of Second Timothy chapter 2. 
always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach, and because I preach this good news, I am suffering and have been chained like a criminal. But the word of God cannot be chained, so I am writing, so I am willing to endure anything if it will bring salvation and eternal glory in Christ Jesus to those God has chosen. This is a trustworthy saying, if we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure hardship, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. Remind everyone about these things and command them in God's presence to stop fighting over words. Such arguments are useless and they can ruin those who hear them. Work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we all say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. In December of 2004, which was it's almost 15 years ago, I was asked to come interview for a youth pastor position here at a local church in the metro. Holly and I were living in Kansas City at that time. We were serving at a church that we loved. We had just purchased a house. We had more friends than we had weekends. It was great living there. But we had been called to interview to be youth pastors at a church in Bethany. And for a variety of reasons, we we felt like we should at least participate in the interview. So we drove down for the weekend interview. And at the end of the weekend, they, they they offered us a position. So we made the big move. We came from Kansas City to Oklahoma City. And now I was a youth pastor of a a really large youth ministry of a really large, established, 100-year-old church. And this church was built on families that had been there for generations and generations. When you would go to church in the morning, it was not unusual to see, like, families sitting all in the same row. And there would be four and five, it felt like, maybe three and four, six generations, whatever the case may be. They were all sitting in the same row. There would be multiple generations sitting in the same row. And they had, they had been, that, that was their family seat, and they had been sitting in it for years. But, the, you know, this was the dawn of the new millennium, and things, things were changing. It was now 2005. And the pace of the world felt like it was accelerating. Some of you remember this. Yahoo and AOL Online were an absolute hit. People were talking to one another over instant messenger on their desktop. Millions and millions were, had been downloading music on Napster. And everyone had their top eight on MySpace. You remember that. Some of you do anyway. The old people might. So when it came to this church that I now was, and when it came to church everywhere, there was a lot of talk about how the world was changing and and how it had an impact on kids and what was going to happen with the kids. I mean, they were talking about where kids were, what they were doing, what they were into, and why the majority of them weren't really that much into church. So looking back, I can... I can kind of see that I was brought in to to perpetuate the generational connection among the families that had a really long generational narrative. 
And while I don't, ha- I didn't have words for it then, I do today. And and I call the whole thing a keeping theology. And people had a keeping theology, and and I remember building a sermon around the keeping theology. Now, on my first Sunday, I was invited to preach. And it was one of those typical youth nights that happened on a Sunday evening. Kids played in the worship band. The church came out. Even the great-grandparents and the grandparents came out to check out the new youth guy. The guy that stood between their kids and their grandkids and eternal destiny. Nothing like uh, a little pressure, you know. Now my first, I remember my first sermon on my first Sunday was here, Oklahoma City, on February the 20th of 2005. And it was out of this text. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And when I saw that the Revised Common Lectionary brought us to this passage, I told Pastor McHale that I was going to preach that very first sermon. Now, I've changed. First, my sermon notes don't look like they, they you know, they don't look today like they did. I, today, I manuscript my sermons. You you may know that. Words are valuable to me. I think words hold a lot of authority and they're important. So I I make sure to choose my words wisely and I pour into my words. But but I used to actually color my sermons. So they might be up here. There are my sermon notes right there. I used to use crayon. I would color them. I would, or as some of you in Oklahoma call crowns, I would use crayons and I would draw and sometimes I still do that in my prep, but I don't do it in the final draft. But I, I figured you might want to look at my sermon notes while I, I preach my sermon, okay? And hopefully, I've gotten not just a little bit better. Hopefully for you, I've not just gotten better, but hopefully I've changed. So I'm going to preach that sermon now, okay? And I, I can't help myself, but I'm, I'm going to preach the sermon And then I'm going to step out of 2005 into 2019. I'm going to make some commentary. I'm going to make some comments on my old sermon, okay? So you ready for that? So here we go. It's 2005. Last week, I was eating lunch with my son. He was two years old. His name was Watson. And I decided it was the perfect time to introduce him to a life of faith. So I started probing him with questions. And I remember asking him, Watson... Where does Jesus live? And without a beat, he said, Oklahoma. Well, I'm in 2019 now. They all laughed, uh, a more hearty laugh than you just did just now. (laughs) Those old church people knew how to respond to church jokes. So then after I said that, I gave tribute to, uh, to the people who were so gracious to me and my family in the move and on and on and on. And I let them know that because of their kindness that Jesus did seem to live in Oklahoma. And, and you know, I mean, that's kind of the reputation of Oklahomans, right? I mean, the Oklahoma standard makes it seem like Jesus should live here. Uh, when I moved here, people were super kind to my family and to me. Folks loved my kid. Uh, I had a nice, a nice new office. I had resources, and and I really fit because I was a conservative evangelical, and I had shaped a philosophy of ministry and a philosophy of life around the idea that it was my job to keep moving that generational connection forward. So, from my white seminary trained evangelical big church perspective. 
that is exactly what I thought 2 Timothy and 1 Timothy were all about. They were a great couple of letters for me. I mean, they had these anecdotes that are wonderful, like don't let anybody look down on you because you're young or, or have courage. Don't have a spirit of timidity, but have a spirit of courage. It was, it was like a good you know, version of the movie Rudy for a youth pastor like me. All these wonderful charges. So uh, I was about keeping the next generation included. I thought that First and Second Timothy were about this. Keeping the next generation included, intact and inspired in terms of matters of faith. So this was my mindset when I was preaching the sermon. Okay, we're back in 2005. A- at the time when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, the church was in a real spot they had, uh, they had been, there had been a lot of activity since the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. But now the church had moved into its third and fourth and fifth generation, or excuse me, third and fourth and fifth decade. And, and they've moved from one generation to the next. Now, severe persecution had hit the church hard. They were facing hardship on, on all sides. It was a tough time. Christians were being fed by lions, they were being buried alive, they were being nailed to crosses. And the question for Christians in the first century was, what will happen to this movement in the next generation? Will they know of the salvation that comes in the love of God? And so Timothy was placed to be the pastor of the church there in Ephesus. And frankly, it wasn't going so well. He was intimidated and young and he lacked courage and imagination. And not only that, but Paul had been arrested. Paul had been put in jail. His life had been threatened. And now rumors were starting to go around that Paul had actually been killed. Paul was dead. That is what Timothy thought. Now Paul was Timothy's spiritual dad. In fact, Paul referred to Timothy as his son. And now Timothy has heard the rumor that Paul might be dead. Now, have you ever been in one of those situations where you hear of something happening on the news and you wonder if you have a friend or a relative that might have been involved in that situation and you fear something might have happened to them? I was at work listening to Jason Whitlock's Neighborhood on Kansas City Sports Radio on a Tuesday morning when Jason Whitlock said, we're picking up ABC News live right now. It then cut to Peter Jennings and he was talking about a plane flying into the South Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City. Then he said a second plane had crashed into the North Tower. And then he started to report that the tower started to crumble. Now, there were reports throughout the day. We heard them, uh, reports about a plane hitting, a pen- hitting the Pentagon and then crashing into a field in Pennsylvania. And we, as a country, were, we were all stunned. But my fear deepened when the report came out that afternoon that one of those, those planes had come from the Logan Airport in Boston. And I knew that my dad had been in Boston for work sometime around that week or was supposed to, but I I couldn't remember when. And I felt it on my insides. I called the house where my parents lived in Chicago about a million times that day, but I couldn't get a hold of them. I remember calling and calling. And I remember thinking, is my, you know, was my dad there? Was he on one of those planes? What if he was? What if my dad was dead? Now, I think that this might have been how Timothy might have been feeling. 
was, uh, was my spiritual dad hurt? Where was he? Was he dead? What would come of life now if he was dead? And I remember the relief that I felt when my mom called. She, she informed me that my dad was okay and that he wasn't there and he wasn't in relation to that place. And while I felt a sense of fear and grief because of what was happening, I also felt some relief. And I think that might have been what Timothy might have felt when he received this, this second letter from Paul in the mail. Like he was feeling a deep sense of relief, but a sense of relief that didn't wipe away all of his fear. Because the letter comes, and Timothy feels immediate relief, but Paul's message was a strange one. It was one of concern. Because if you would read Second Timothy, you'd find that it was like final last words to Timothy. And Timothy, we know, was fearful and timid and young and even a little bit shy. So Paul's words were not just words of encouragement, but they were words of charge. And he was like, have courage. Do your work like I've done. Do your work like your grandma Lois and your mother Eunice have done so that the next generation knows. The gospel, Paul says, is reliable. So here we are now back in 2019. And now you can imagine that the people of that congregation on that day, they were tracking with me. They had lived through 9-11 and it was early in 2005. So still things were fresh on their minds. And they were, they were hooked with that line. Do your work like I have done, like your grandmother and your mother have done, so the next generation knows. The gospel is reliable. And that, in that room, in that space, in that sanctuary, got a lot of amens. So I concluded, welcome back to 2005. I said, you know, the issues of our world are the same issues of Paul and Timothy's world. Christianity now in the new millennium is in a strange space. In fact, I said a 2001 study done by the Barna Group said that only two out of five teenagers that grow up in the church will return as young adults. Believe that the gospel is reliable? What does ministry look like to young people at our church? Do they believe that the gospel is reliable? Is an invitation taking place? Do we look at the Barna study like this and say, two out of five, not on our watch. And then will the generation know? We're back in 2019. Friends, I had them on the edge of their seats. I could feel the energy and the passion. I mean, these were preacher questions. As a preacher, it feels so good to have you all in the palm of my hand. And I did. Then I combined the issues of Paul's world and the issues of our 2005 world, contemporary world, and I stuck them together. There in 2005, I said, I was reading a book recently where the author said that he was in an airport at a overseas speaking at an event he said in the terminal he tried to read the newspaper to catch up on the happenings of the world and near him were these two young boys about six and ten years old that were roughhousing their parents were nowhere in sight so aggravated he looked for the parents of the kids but he didn't see anyone around so he just tried to refocus on his newspaper when he heard a smack and a blood-curdling shriek He put his newspaper down just in enough time to notice that the older boy had hit the younger one so hard that it had knocked him off his feet. Then, as if he was a soldier trained in hand-to-hand combat, he jumped on his younger brother and started to smash his head into the concrete floor. 
Well, the author runs over and he grabs the boy, pulling him off of his brother, shouting the whole time in the terminal, where are these boys' parents? Somebody go get their parents. About that time, they called his name over, they called his plane and people started uh, loading the plane and he stood there holding the boys apart, keeping them from attacking one another when the check-in lady said at the, when, when the check-in lady said after everybody had boarded, sir, you must get on your plane now. So he handed the boys over to her and he said, find these boys' parents. And as he stepped into the gateway, he's walking down the ramp, he yells again, find those boys' parents. Well, when he gets into the airplane seat, his adrenaline is pumping and he feels a wave of sickness come over him. And it was a sickness that comes over, that only comes as a result of a terrible act of violence. He said he sat in his seat and he tried to shake it. He grabbed his newspaper, but he could not concentrate. He looked at the menu list, but he still couldn't shake it. He tried to put on his earphones to try to distract himself from what he saw and he couldn't shake it. And he said, and that's when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God spoke to him, and he felt the Spirit say to him, don't try to avoid this feeling too quickly. Think about it. Feel it. So he did. And he sat there the whole plane ride asking the question, what makes little children who are so young do such horrible things? What will help these kids? Where will they end up? Will they go to jail? Will they end up in a life of crime? Will they have an opportunity to get an education, to maybe go to college? What will become of them? What would help them? Would He started thinking, would good laws put in place help them? Would good education put in place help them? Would classes for their parents put... Uh, classes put in place for their parents help them? And then he came to the conclusion at the end of his flight, only... The church can help them. And that is what Paul is doing in this letter to Timothy. He's acting as if he is his spiritual dad, encouraging him to lead the church that will establish hope for kids like this, for people like this. Paul's in prison. He doesn't know how much time he's got left. And now he is passing the baton over to Timothy. Go to the next slide. You'll be, there's my picture of Paul passing the baton over to Timothy. Paul is imparting his knowledge. He's imparting his wisdom, his fatherhood onto Timothy. He's passing the baton under his spiritual son. I'm out of 2005 into 2019. And then that, my friends, is when I started to bring it home. I started to ask that congregation some serious questions some generational questions some questions that uh, they were sitting there thinking about and I'm back in 2005 will the church be what the next generation needs it to be Will it be a place that tells the next generation of God's own coming? Will an invitation to authentic community be extended where life sharing takes place, where refuge is given, where healing is offered, and where conversion happens? And then we watched a video that was very moving and people came to the altar to pray for the next generation and there were tears and Kleenex. It was an amazing night for me. And now I'm back in 2019 because on that goal, uh, because the goal on that night and through much of my ministry was this. It was just a, an attempt 
to keep the young in church. I, I thought about it all the time. That was the silver bullet for a good life. Let's do whatever it takes to keep them here. It was a good evangelical sermon. It was a really good Oklahoma sermon. But frankly, this might shock some of you, but I was dipping my toe into a little bit of heresy. Because heretical beliefs are those that reduce the work and ministry of Jesus to a personal agenda. And instead of proposing that the church be more faithful in taking a posture of listening and taking a posture of service and taking a posture of suffering alongside with. It was a posture of dominant control. That's what it means when he's not on our watch. And one of the main issues that Paul was, was wrestling with and what he was inviting Timothy to wrestle with was the idea that salvation is much more holistic than we ever have considered. We've taken salvation and we've wrapped it up in a nice, white, evangelical, American, Oklahoma package. And we've reduced salvation to individualistic decisions or, or a confirmation about a belief system or a set of doctrines that's just simply for the sheer, sheer purpose of getting folks to heaven. And, and I, I saw that my job at the church was to get kids to make a decision to secure their soul for eternity, but their bottoms for the row next to their great-grandparents and their grandparents. But you know what? If you would look at both of these letters, you will see that Paul was fighting against that idea. In fact, there were two guys whose names were Hymnaeus and Philetus that were popular charismatic preachers on the preaching circuit. Paul refers to them in these two letters. And as a part of their personal agenda, they denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus and they simply saw salvation as a purely individualistic endeavor that promised everlasting life. And the message that they went around preaching was this message. They only were concerned about salvation as it referred to life after death and, and uh, what happens to your soul in eternity. But they never considered, and in fact, they denied that the salvation of God in Christ was not just to save individuals in the world, not just to save individual people in the world, but actually that... Uh, that the purpose of salvation was to save the world in its entirety. They never saw the broader vision of hope and transformation, that all uh, transformation of all humanity. They could not see that it came in seeing that salvation came in seeing their neighbor, and seeing the plight of their neighbor, and being a part of the restoration of their neighbor. And I didn't see that either. Paul's vision, which is a vision of the Gospels, was a salvation of liberation of all people when it came to all systems of oppression. His vision was uh, one that transformed society and it was rooted in social justice and in the kingdom of God. His vision was not just to keep people like I, like I had and, and what these two, Hymnaeus and, and Philetus had, theirs was a vision of, of the spirituality of the soul. And that was it. And that was also my vision. Friends, our salvation is not a disembodied salvation. 
It's an embodied one. God is not just saving our souls. He's not just interested in the spiritual side of us. He is saving our bodies. And God is at work saving us as he is at the same time saving our neighbors. John Wesley said that we are not saving the poor or the broken when we serve them. We are in fact getting saved when we serve them. And that causes us to do all kinds of rethinking. It causes us to rethink the way we do church. It causes us the way to rethink the way in which we minister to our, uh, the people who uh, we work with. It causes us to rethink the way in which we parent. And so since the topic was about kids, I, I think we can ask some of those questions. Do we, as parents, work to care for our kids by keeping them? Or do we ask, what will we have to sacrifice to share in the suffering of our kids? And how can we invite other church people who have a larger Jesus vision into the suffering of our kids? That was not a question I asked. All I wanted to know was how we kept our kids. The same question applies to our neighbor. We, we love singing hymns about a life with God shared in the resurrection. But you know what Paul did? He considered it pure joy to share in the suffering of neighbors. For to share in the suffering, that was the gospel. And Paul says, Timothy, don't be afraid of that. Last week, um, Nick Lee, uh, Nick is a friend of this church, African-American leader in our community, the CEO of the Uncommon Collective, which is a nonprofit here in town. He and I sent a letter to the church on matters of race and white privilege and the sufferings, suffering that persons of color in our country have to endure every day. And in the letter, I wrote these, I, I said these words. My brother Nick Lee took up real courage by speaking with honesty, anger, beauty, and candor about the event that took place in Dallas. His is the true commentary to Paul's words. His is the commentary we should listen to. His, comment his is the true commentary to the deeply rooted sin of racism. And if we're going to remain brothers, which I want more than anything, and I'm going to remain a Christian, which I want almost as much, I can no longer ignore events like this anymore. Ignorance, creating the illusion of distance, is not an option. Now a question came to me this week about what I meant when I said, if we're going to remain brothers, which I want more than anything, and I'm going to remain a Christian, which I want almost as much, I cannot ignore events like this anymore. The concern came to me in this way. Are you saying that if you had to choose Jesus or Nick, that you would not choose Jesus, but that you would first choose Nick? And my answer was this. In choosing Nick, I am choosing Jesus. For to choose Nick, to listen to what he has to say about violence, the criminal justice system, fear, the oppression of African Americans in our community, is, is, to, uh, is to make the decision that I will... I will set aside when I can, set aside with his help, set aside my privilege and find a way to share in the suffering. To choose Nick is to choose Jesus. I'm not interested in choosing doctrine. All of the right words about what it means to be Christian. 
I'm not interested in formulating a set of beliefs or a certain system, but I am interested in the salvation that Paul says comes in the sharing of the suffering of others. I'm interested in an embodied salvation. This week, several of us, Pastor McHale said, we're at a conference on community development, and she already mentioned the MC. But you know what I noticed that the MC kept doing? The MC kept calling us while telling us the truth about our own decisions to keep salvation in a little controlled box, even though most of us do it that way, even though most of us forego the opportunity to acknowledge our role in contributing to injustice, do you know, even though we, we fight to keep God and our beliefs in that little box, do you know what she kept calling us? Saints of God. She would say, listen here, saints of God. I've got truth to tell you, saints of God. I'm inviting you to hear hard things, saints of God. And I'm calling you, saints of God, to participate in the suffering of others. And that is what I wish I would have said to the church on that day. Saints of God, whose theology is one of keeping... Take upon yourself the vision of Paul. Listen to his charge to Timothy as if it was your charge. The gospel is good for all, but it is only good as the saints of God align themselves with the Jesus who is seen in their neighbor. Choosing your neighbor is choosing him. And so to that end and for that end, work and have courage. And I trust That if you do this, in the end, you will find that your body and your soul will be saved. So before we come to the table of our Lord, I want to pray. But I want to invite you to consider this question as we pray together. Who are the mentors? We use the word mentor a lot. But what I mean, the saints of God. Who are the saints of God? Those whom you know that have suffered alongside another. And that are the embodiers of good news. Would you just take a moment and consider them? Those who you have seen have sacrificed. It may be not somebody that you know personally. It may be somebody that you've read about. But who are the mentors? The saints of God. Those whom you know or those whom you have heard about. That have committed themselves to suffer alongside another. That has embodied the good news that Paul talks about. So I invite you to close your eyes and I invite us to pray together. We're grateful, God, that through the ministry of Jesus you save our soul. But a disembodied kind of salvation actually saves nothing. We get to participate in the work that you have And in the sharing of suffering with our neighbor, you actually go about the business of saving us. We don't know how that happens, but it just does. And when we have gotten to experience it, we have found that it is good. Good news for us. So we reflect on those saints of God. Those mentors. Those people that might be in this room. Those people in history that we know or we've read about that inspire us. That demonstrate the courage and the vision of Paul and what he was encouraging Timothy to embrace. And we just say, we're grateful for them. We're thankful for how you grow and you you grow us. 
and how we're not the same as we were 15 years ago, but in your mercy and your grace, you invite us into a new way of thinking. And for that, we are grateful. And we're also grateful that before we even knew who we were, when we were still sinners, God died in solidarity with us. Christ shares in our suffering. It's the story that we hold on to as we even come to this table. It's a great story that reminds us that Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And so we are grateful that you share in our suffering and you invite us to share in yours so that together we might know and realize the hope of resurrection that you have intended for all. This is what we want and this is what we ask for from you, in the strong name of the resurrected Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord. Amen. So at dinner, Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed by those he came to save, took the bread and gave thanks, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you, an act of sharing and suffering. And whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood. It's an act of sharing in your suffering. And whenever you drink of this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. We come to this table because it is a means of grace for us. John Wesley believed that it was salvific. It means that, which means that it's one of the places where we get saved. It is by sharing in Christ's suffering and sharing in the suffering of others as we come to this table. How this works is a mystery, but I think that it's happening here at our church. We meet uh, here and we find that we get, when we meet here, we find that we get saved from our ways, our selfishness, our past, and we get saved into a new future. And if you need to get saved like me, you are welcome to this table. We want no barriers, so our bread is gluten-free, our, our cup is non-alcoholic, so when you come, move out of your row into the aisle and come with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We do not take communion here. We receive it because it is a gift. So I invite you to come to one of these servers, listen to what they have to say, dip the bread into the cup, and then when you are ready, you might eat it. You are welcome to come, my friends, and my fellow journeyers in suffering. You are welcome to come to this table when you are ready.